Hi, welcome to Heavy Strategy, where the questions are sometimes more interesting than the answers, if there even are any answers. And there may not be really viable answers to the question I'm about to ask you, Greg, which is this. Why the hell are people so damn stupid about cybersecurity? This is a this is a topic that I've ranted on quite long and hard about on various shows in that a few years ago, it was really easy to make the case that security didn't matter. It didn't matter what sort of a breach you had. It didn't matter what sort of crime was perpetrated against your organization. There was no consequences. Look at Target, look at SolarWinds, look at Equifax, the amazing getting Equifax hack. However, there is the argument to be said that that is starting to change. We're starting to see cybersecurity become a national security issue. So the governments are starting to understand that cybersecurity matters in the current geopolitical environment. So that's raising awareness, I think, in the mainstream press. And the senior executives who have plenty of other things to think about are starting to twig to the fact that cybersecurity matters not as a, oh, wish that would go away, sort of, I know I have to do something about it, maybe next year get some insurance, we're done. It's changing or morphing, and we're now in a place of inconsistency. Our, our attitudes towards cybersecurity are now crystallizing from some amorphous, non-specific risk to a much more, uh, this presents an existential risk to our companies, to our lives and our political systems. Does that make sense? So recognize that it's not just a corporate issue, it's, it's a societal issue as well. Uh, yeah, no, that makes perfect sense. And I want to add two things to that. Um, you pointed out the views are changing slightly because because it's becoming a national security issue there's also the fact that for the very first time senior executive face senior executives face the possibility of going to jail if something happens and they are deemed to have not handled it correctly and i'm referring to joe sullivan the former ciso of uber who was just convicted on the charge of attempting to cover up a data breach and without getting down the rat hole into that particular case, essentially the message here is when you've got the entire senior management conspiring to do something, they get caught. The fall guy is the CISO. So all of a sudden, CISOs are beginning to take the whole issue of security extremely personally because suddenly that means they might go to jail. You kind of hit on this whole issue of, well, people used to think about cybersecurity as something I wish it would go away. I actually recently put together a list of bad mental models for cybersecurity. The easiest and the oldest one is the warranty model. Like hmm. I am spending I am spending $10 million on my IT infrastructure per year. Uh, so therefore I need to take 4% of that and spend that on cybersecurity because that's how I protect my $10 million investment. Mm -hmm. The flaw in that is you're not protecting the technology, you're protecting the company. More recently, I've seen lots of things that talk about cybersecurity hygiene, which I hate. Can you tell from my voice? <laughs> yeah. That's um, like saying wiping your butt will, is enough. It's yeah. like saying, I'm going to, we're in a war and I'm going to send my soldiers out to an exposed location with bows and arrows and tell them, practice good hygiene now That's, against those tanks. Yes. And, you know, or, or even more basically, you know, wipe front to back, not back to front. Right, right, right. You know, right. You know, it's it's like, just not, it's not, not going to solve the problem. No, right. That's right. Yeah. And then, and then how many articles have you seen that start with cybersecurity tips and tricks, yeah. um, which I hate with a white hot passion because it implies that all you need to do is is tweak a little bit around the edges and you'll be great. It's like tips and tricks for losing 50 pounds, learning classical Greek and becoming a concert pianist yeah. by next Sunday. <laughs> right? Like that <laughs> doesn't just happen. doesn't work. I think a lot of what you just discussed is a the thing there's actually a societal concept called moral hazard 
Now, yes. So moral hazard is um, uh, came out of the insurance industry, and what they found was, before car insurance existed, people there were less car accidents, and when people were able to widely buy car insurance to protect their investment in the vehicle, the actual number of car accidents and the amount of damage caused went up. Car companies. <laughs> We're delighted by it, of course, because there was more spare parts. To buy more cars, or buy more cars, but the insurance companies had to change their policies based on that fact. If there is no consequences to the action, then the hazard becomes that you take more risks. So travel insurance means people go skiing, which is that is obviously a dangerous sport. People break limbs, damage themselves, but because they have travel insurance, they're willing to take risks that they're not able to handle because they're on holiday. So that's the idea. Right. Either the consequences are mitigated somehow. I think the other thing that we're seeing too is that a lot of the times, as soon as people buy insurance or figure that they've got a cybersecurity team in our case, then ignorance becomes acceptable. You don't have to understand the intricacies. It's a bit like executives have bigger problems elsewhere. Like if your company's struggling to make a profit or your headcount, you're not getting headcount or your competitor's making a move and you're worried or the accounting's not working or the shareholders are having a revolt. How important is IT in that framework and how important is cybersecurity, which is even like you have to have an IT function to have a cybersecurity problem. You have to be profitable to have an IT function. A lot of the time where cybersecurity has been just what I call cyber stupid because it just didn't make sense just to waste a lot of time and energy on it. There was zero consequences. But as you say, things are changing. There are consequences now. We're seeing governments create policies where publicly listed companies and private companies must disclose if they're breached and leaked. Uh, And we're also seeing, as you said, this this idea that the CISO is your fall guy or girl. And now it's always just been they get sacked. So in the case of Equifax or Target or whoever, your CISO gets sacked, gets a jolted handshake, and out the door they go, pretty happy. <laughs> like yeah, exa- no- exactly. I mean, no CISO worth his or her salt is negotiating a deal that has anything other than if I'm fired for any reason, here's the dollar amount you're paying right. me. And he'll be out the door like a shot with the dollar value going, excellent, <laughs> on to the next one. I have a friend who likes to talk about uh, a colleague he knows that is a CIO, as it happens, not a CISO. And the guy is the worst CIO in the history of CIOs. He never lasts more than 18 months anywhere, but he Mm. interviews really well. And what happens is the company that lets him go is so happy that he leaves. They have mutual NDAs. (laughs) Nobody ever talks trash about him. And the guy just keeps going up and up and up. Rising to your level of incompetence. But I think the interesting one is the Uber thing that you talked about, where the CISO is actually going to jail. I don't know that he is, but generally the usual. And yes, he is. Yeah, yeah. when you get find, found guilty of a federal crime, you usually go to jail. No, he is. Uh, it was announced this morning. He's guilty. He's, anyway. he's guilty. Well, and... they haven't sentenced him yet, but yeah. No. yeah. If that happens, yeah. that changes the game, right? It's yeah. one thing to get a golden handshake and get a, you know, a, a, a significant bonus, half a million, a million more. Another mm-hmm. thing to get your handshake and a criminal, a criminal record, which means you'll never be a CISO again, of course, right? Well, it means a lot of things, including you're going to get separated from your spouse and family, assuming you have them, your pets, Mm. your life, as you know it. And I think there's a bigger issue, which, first of all, I want to stop and say moral hazard. The answer to the question that I ask is because they can. People are being so stupid because they can. And I guess what we're talking about on this this show is that maybe, just maybe, they can't quite anymore. Yeah, I think moral hazard is changing for the reasons that we outlined, right? People are starting to go to jail. There are legal consequences. There's one thing I I just want to point out about this. Oh, sure. uh, A lot of people say, what's the law doing here? The thing to remember about the law is the law doesn't prevent crime. 
the, the law enforcement is about finding justice after the crime. And it's the justice after the crime that leads to deterrence because you will pay a bigger price. Now, it, effectively, it raises the cost of the crime. So if you're going to be a CISO and do something illegal, going to jail is raising the cost of hiding the breach or paying out the criminals illegally, right? Yeah, there's two things to follow up on that. Um, the first one, though, I want to I want to highlight. This is where we've we've ventured into the land of law of unintended consequences because I think most people are delighted to hear that a CISO is going to jail. Mm. You know, you do the crime, you do the time. Yeah. And what they're neglecting is the fact that, by all evidence, he had full support of the C-suite in everything he is alleged to have done. Mm -hmm. And so the message here is literally, we do the crime, you do the time. Yes. And the problem with that scenario is no sane person who understands risks is going to take that job unless he or she is deeply lacking in yeah. integrity. So what and this does is force people, you know, it's there's already a problem. We have too many sociopaths in the C-suite because that's where the power is and the money and the perks. Yeah. Now you're saying, OK, the only people who will succeed at being CISO are sociopaths. I don't think that's a good thing. I suspect it'll be, he'll end up being like a gang thing and he'll have taken a hit for the team and he didn't rat anybody out. He'll do the time, come back, and they'll make sure that he lives fairly comfortably. Nah, not these particular guys because it's Uber, but yes, I think more more broadly, yes. Now, Uber has no loyalty to anybody. Well, VC bros, there's a background thing that does happen. So it's possible that he might come out of this like a gang member, you know, yeah. come back to the gang later on. And the main thing to understand here is that law enforcement does not prevent it only deters, right? In, and in, in this case, it, it deters, it doesn't really deter because what it attempts to do is deter the crime. What it ends up doing hmm. is setting up a scenario where the only people in the position to commit the crime are people who are yeah. stone-cold sociopaths Does, who are willing to go to jail uh, because the bennies are so good. Yeah, what you're effectively saying is that a CISO might be sitting in front of the board saying, it says, well, we're not going to spend money on this cybersecurity. And he says, well, I can't risk going to jail. I resign. Right, that's, and then the next person up is going to go, you know what? The chances are that I'm going to go to jail. I don't really care as long as I get enough money, money. which means the kind of, <laughs> yeah, yeah exactly. the kind of person that doesn't care about about being thrown under the bus, doesn't Possibly. care about committing crimes, and just wants enough money. The the technical term for that is sociopath. So it's it's all probabilistic. But essentially, you're what you're doing poker. is you're putting putting a filter in that says instead of one or ten percent of the people in CISO suites who are CISOs are sociopaths. Now we're up in that to twenty five or thirty, mm -hmm. and there's a bit of a tipping point. And I'm making the numbers up, but the point is. Even if it's a minority of all people who are CISOs, you're making it much more attractive to have sociopaths in the CISO position, which is a really bad thing because all okay. it takes is a couple percentage point increase to really change things. So let's move on to discussing competence. I think part of moral hazard is a lot of people don't understand cybersecurity. In fact, they don't understand technology generally. How do you solve that? How do you teach a 65-year-old CEO of an organization or a board member who's 70 who still thinks that a pen is the height of technology. I'm exaggerating a little bit, but you get the idea, right? Just a little bit. <laughs> to my mind, there's a couple of things that are happening here. Um, I think most people can't understand cyber risk. You can't explain cyber risk to somebody who doesn't understand technology. To some extent, it's just a matter of time until the boomers age out and we start getting people in senior roles who actually grasp cyber technology and, and understand the risks associated with the use of, right? Well, I would say yes, but you're missing kind of a nuance. Um, mm -hmm. I, I do think there's an element of just let the boomers age out because at some point people stop wanting to learn things. Mm -hmm. But the bigger issue is I think there's, and this is a, an entirely different rant, but there's not being able to understand something complicated. And I would, I would 
I would say, listen, anybody who's running a company can understand complicated things. So mm. let's rule that out unless they're idiots. But let's rule that out. The real issue is this emotional thing that says my eyes glaze over when you start talking that way. And unfortunately, we all have it. And yeah. it's it's a wanting not to learn something in a particular area because you just don't want to. And that's where the boomers aging out will come in. But the flip side of what you just said is that cybersecurity professionals really need to get better at translating cyberspeak to business speak. And I and think I mentioned versa. one of and my hobby versa. horses is yeah. that people in business need to learn enough cyber. Yes, know, yes, enough security to, to understand the conversation. It has yeah, to be a two-way street. Absolutely. There's in too fact, much emphasis just, on one side coming to the business and the business has to come the other way as well. Yeah, the, the business does not need to be spoon-fed. Um, they need to make an effort. And in fact, just before this uh, show, I was actually putting the finishing touches on a glossary designed to be a glossary for business people to understand some of these terms so they're not quite so intimidated in case some of them were. I actually have the data to, to prove that IT and cybersecurity professionals are actually 30% worse at communicating to the board than non-techie peers. The way in which they're worse is that they're terrible at translating technical concepts to business concepts and, as you said, vice versa, yeah, business I, I often to technical. Find, I think you're alluding there to the fact that a lot of cybersecurity are objectionable personalities. The, the, I'm not. The I'm, I'm not actually. I, yeah. I'm not actually. What we did here okay, was we I did. Uh, we, well, you can, but hold <laughs> on. We did a research study really interviewing CEOs and board members. So that's what they came back to us with. And it's one of the things we teach our clients is hmm. this is how you translate cyberspeak. Yeah. But that said, talk to me about objectionable personality. Cybersecurity spends a lot of time saying no. People in business don't like being told no over and over and over. They like yeah. to hear yes or we need to move forward. And that's a problem. That's almost insurmountable. The people in the cybersecurity roles need to have the credibility and the capability to be able to say, no, you can't. And that's a very th difficult thing to do in a business that's trying to move forward at speed or does that make sense? Like you become an unpopular yes, but, figure. Quickly. Yes, but no, because I think there's, I'll give you a very concrete example. I'm working with a large mm -hmm. client that like a lot of our large clients is under enormous pressure from Microsoft to move from E3 to E5. And Microsoft, for whatever reason, has decided that all the productivity bells and whistles that's piled into E5 is not enough to get people to, to make the leap. So they're running around talking to all the cybersecurity professionals about why getting all the cool cyber stuff should but, merit the drive. But E5 is just about patching the holes that Microsoft put in the products in the first place. In the first place. But the point, the point I'm trying to get at, when, when you say it's all about saying no, Honestly, I tell the cybersecurity professionals, no, don't say no. Just simply say, from a cybersecurity perspective, there's no reason to move to E5. If you wish to move to E5 because there are productivity benefits, because Microsoft is a client of ours and we like them, because, I don't know, you have an insane attachment to really badly designed 1980s logos, <laughs> I don't care. It's not no. It's just we will assume this risk on your behalf of your decision. We're just telling you there's a risk. Yeah. And that's, I guess, what I'm getting at. We're just telling you there's a risk is so not me, no. Let me ask you, there's, there's an interesting discussion I've heard elsewhere, and it, it was several years ago, and somebody said, you've got a problem with technology. Either we're moving too slow or we're not moving fast enough. We need to either slow down so people get time to use it and understand the risks. Or the other way to do this is to go faster so that we get onto the next generation of technology, which might be more secure. And it's an interesting discussion to say, if you believe that people haven't had time to learn technology or adapt to technology and then be able to evaluate cyber risks, one way to do that is to slow down the rate of change and say, now we're going to help you understand the risks around it. But then you're also stuck with insecure software like Microsoft Office 
whatever the version is this year. <laughs> Microsoft anything. We can Microsoft stop anything or, you know, VMware products or whatever, right? So another argument says, well, what happens if we just accelerate the rate of change and try and get to a point where we've moved through to the next generation of technology? So you, there's an interesting argument that you could have, which says that cybersecurity could be improved by going slower, where you could patch the holes, identify the risks and give people time to catch up. Or you could move faster. So, And so far, the industry is moving to the faster. Patching, upgrading, constant updates, non-avoidable updates, always connected to the internet. And the theory there is that the faster you move, we will get to a point where the products are mature and stable instead of waiting longer periods of time. Now, that's an interesting discussion to have. The problem there is that some companies can't handle too fast. Too much change actually alienates people or institutions or organizations are not used to rapid iterations. But at the same time, you also don't want to be stuck on a slow path and then handling risks that are out of date, easily exploited, et cetera, et cetera. Any thoughts on that? Well, I, I think, first of all, the sort of too fast or too slow, it's um, the wrong metaphor. It's the wrong analogy. As you were talking, I kept thinking of surfing. Mm. You know, when you're in the water, when the wave is building up behind you, you're not going to make a lot of forward progress because the water is pulling you back. Yeah. The trick is catching that wave and riding it really fast. Mm -hmm. The solution is the same one. Good surfers are constantly watching the waves, looking at the sets, looking how, looking at ev how everything's breaking, looking at not only the change, but the rate of change and the rate of change, of the rate of change to figure out where the next wave is going to be to catch it, to, to ride it. Because you can't simultaneously go too fast, you know, go faster and go slower, but neither one is necessarily the right answer. What you want to do is take advantage of those paradigm shifts that happen, the waves, that happen every so often. Make sure you pick the right paradigm shift, ride it as far as you can, and then pick the next wave so that you're not stuck in the back paddling while everybody's moved on with zero trust or whatever it is. Yeah. So what that means is that you need a much more strategic view of what's going on in cybersecurity and that kind of brings me to my second point, because when you talk about upgrading patches and fixing SecOps, that's not a strategic view. And that's why we're talking about it on this show, because ultimately, one of the answers that boils up ends up being, think about this strategically. I'll use metaphors like surfing. I'll use metaphors like war. Mm. But the idea is you have to get above the plane of action, above the field of action, and try to figure yeah. out what's going on so you can take advantage of it. I, I was more simplifying to something down at the... The concept that I had in my people who use devices, a lot of the times we talk about teaching the user or making it the user's responsibility. And we've talked in a previous show how that doesn't work because you can't expect your users to do that. We need to make, that's like saying, drive around in an unsafe car and then it's the driver's fault if anything goes wrong. Or planes are <clears> unsafe, it's always the pilot's fault, not the plane's fault, right? Anyway. Yeah, and then instead you develop checklists and you have user interfaces that are less prone to error. And, you know, my favorite example when they first introduced ATMs, and I may have used this before, mm. but when they first introduced ATMs, people were forever leaving their cards inside the machine because the, the sequence was you put your card in the machine, you entered your PIN, the money came out. And then your card would be released and normal humans will get their money and walk away. Um, <laughs> but that was also so a function of the era. You got the money, you walked away, right? That When well, we lived in yeah, cash but, societies, but you know. But, but the point was, as soon as they changed it so that you didn't get the money until you took your card out, mm. they, they, that problem of le cards left in dropped to almost zero. Yeah, so, there's an interesting angle in cybersecurity that I, I hear a lot, which is the asymmetry of cyber defense. That is, an attacker only has to win once, whereas a defender has right. to win every single time. And that is a hard thing to explain to an executive. They're used to winning all the time. The point with a cyber breach, you know, or some sort of 
security event is often that the attacker just something happened inside your OODA loop, you know, faster than you yeah. can update your defenses and attack team out. So we see that very often. You know, how do you defend against something where... No I want to come back to this because I think I think you have to change your model to your mental model to something we were talking about before the show, actually, mm. sort of talking about hurricanes and how if you live in a low-lying area, you're going to get pummeled by hurricanes. And one of the things I've always been trying to convince clients is stop thinking about cybersecurity is a plumbing problem. My plumbing will work great if it's designed well, regularly maintained by a competent credentialed plumber. I don't need to think about it. I will always be mm. able to turn the faucet and the water will come through and I'll never get a flood. Think of it like hurricane planning where you can build to code. You can do everything in your power and then maybe a hurricane Ian can come and still clobber you. And those are the breaks because yes. that's really what cybersecurity is like. It's got to be the hurricane model, not the plumbing model. That's where cyber insurance is actually going. So cyber exactly. insurance today actually covers you for the plumbing and we're seeing the cost of cyber insurance rise. So it becomes the hurricane event, not the day to day. Right. Yeah. And based on your, based on your risk level and your business, you may decide you need to build in Florida because your business happens to be, you know, vacation homes by the water and it's not going to work very well, in, you know, in Kansas. But if you are geography independent, you may choose not to build on a beachfront property in a hurricane zone probably in order to minimize the risk. But again, yes. that gets back to the whole tips and tricks issue, yeah. which is it's not a tip or trick to say, oh, I need to move my entire headquarters or rejigger my entire company so that we will be less exposed to this particular risk. No. In the case of cybersecurity, that actually might be the case. If you were smart, yeah. knowing that Florida is a hurricane zone and it's only a matter of time until the next hurricane comes along and climate change might be accelerating that, the metaphor there is, of course, that cybersecurity is accelerating. The attackers are becoming more competent. Exactly. And exactly. And if yeah. your uh, internal infrastructure is based on an insecure product, Oracle, SAP, Microsoft, whatever, you might actually need to move off that because that is the systemic risk. Anything Thank else? you, my friend. <laughs> I sent out a an advisory yesterday because I was absolutely losing it here in the U.S., um, our intelligence agencies have just let us know that, oh, oh, by the way, some of our um, critical defense infrastructure has been uh, attacked and successfully attacked um, using a vulnerability in Microsoft Exchange. And that was going on from January 2021 to January 2022. So here are our recommendations. And I was reading through the mitigation recommendations, first of all, thinking, thanks for telling us here in October 2022. Some of us have heard about it before, but still, this is our public announcement. Kind of mm. slow, guys. Second one was the biggest and best mitigation risk you'll notice they didn't mention, which is get the heck off of Microsoft. And I don't understand enterprise addiction to Microsoft. I do know they have great salespeople. But I do know they have. So that comes so back to have, the metaphor saying people still. Build in hurricane zones. Yeah. People still build in hurricane zones. People are still saying they're going back to Florida, even though the next hurricane could be <clears> as soon as next year. Greg, it could be as soon as next month. Hurricane season doesn't end for another month and a half. Think about that. I, I think the point that we're trying to get at here is mm. I don't know that we're going to change a single enterprise organization to say, oh, gosh, maybe I need to rejigger my entire company and get off Oracle or Microsoft or VMware or whatever it is. But I'd like you guys to at least start thinking that such a solution might be what's needed. You know, it yeah. might actually have to be that it might actually have to be that big of a deal. You know, you really might need to re-architect your, your company from the ground up in many respects. So I think what you're talking about there is attack surface, 
one of the challenges that we have when talking to executives about understanding what the attack service looks like. Now, fortunately, more recently, we've seen tools like Zero Trust and ID management we can do to improve the perimeter. Now, keep in mind that the challenge with Zero Trust and ID management is sometimes about a lot of existing compliance, PCI, um, DSS, you know, the health stuff often is based around a perimeter device like a firewall and things like that. This is where I was talking about moving fast and moving slow. You, you have organizations who want to adopt zero trust, but the, the law compliance says you can't, or it's very difficult to do so. The next thing is creating laws and standards can prevent new solutions from emerging. So would we have seen zero trust come out years ago if we didn't have firewalls? I don't know the answer to that one. That's just a, an interesting one where things are just a little bit weird. I do, and I think it's a legit question. And part of the part of the challenge is there's a bit of murkiness about the roots of zero trust because, on the one hand, it's a Forrester analyst who said this is my philosophical hypothetical architecture that people ought to use to be secure. And honestly, that whole perimeter perimeterless defense had been bouncing around for 25 years. We just didn't give it a catchy name. Yeah. Uh, and and you know he the guy is is genuinely legit bright, but. You know, the the most brilliant thing he did was come up with a catchy name that, that got people talking. You know, zero trust isn't really zero trust, whatever. It doesn't matter. Mm -hmm. It's a good name. <laughs> but the other, the flip side is that there was actually already an instantiation of such an architecture that was Google's in Beyond Core. And so you can sort of, you know, he gets a little, his feathers ruffled if you say, well, actually zero trust came from Google. It, it didn't, it didn't. They certainly didn't call it zero trust, but the approach was very much a zero trust approach. So, so to answer your question, I think, Conceptually, it's been around for a long, long time. I think two things came together, a really good catchy name and an actual working implementation that convinced people it could be done in real life and not just in some analyst PowerPoints. Um, and that was what it took to move forward. Also, because a lot of people were starting to look at Google's problems and saying, I'm not Google and I'm not going to have Google's problems, but give me enough time and that level of scale is going to hit me too. So I might as well think about zero trust lucky enough to have gotten an actual architecture after the fact when NIST developed its zero trust architecture. So yeah, there is a big fan of NIST. I don't, I, I find I'm not NIST. a big fan of NIST generally. Um, this one they got right. I'd okay. say 90% of the time they get it wrong. This one they actually got right uh, because you can now A, see what an architecture would look like and tweak it to, to fit your needs and B, go look at a list of products and instantiate that architecture, which is huge. When somebody says, no, you really need to build something that looks like this and here's why. And here's the tools you can use to build it. That's a huge step function increase over a hand wavy. Well, implement zero trust. But we can't tell you how, where, or with what yeah, products. This is where you're moving fast or moving slower. Do you move fast, rapidly adopt something like zero trust, make it more complicated for people <clears throat> to understand? You know, all of a sudden there's this I, I change. Don't, but see, I don't think it's it's more complicated. I mean, my introduction to zero trust was dead simple. No, no, it's probably, it's not that the usage it's a, is No, let me finish. It's a, dec it's a decade ago. I interviewed a guy at a hedge fund and I said, you know, routine question, how many firewalls do you have? And he said, none, I've moved to zero trust. And I stopped and I thought about it and I said, that makes sense. Yeah. Uh, you obviously have a lot of confidence in your approach. Talk to me about it. But the point is you don't need firewalls if you move to zero trust. You may use them because they're good monitoring devices. So you're actually yeah, bringing a lot of complexity. Points points. Yeah. You don't need VPNs. You don't need firewalls. You don't need a whole host of stupid things that are rendered obsolete by zero trust. So it actually simplifies enormously. And then of course, now we end up with cost because now you've got all of the cost, all the old infrastructure. So people still have firewalls when they don't need them. And then the cost of the new stuff, like the cost of new security products is way out of line with the value that they bring. In my opinion, the people who do 
like the money to be made in security. Like you're looking at the run-up in security stocks is just phenomenal over the last well, three years. I agree, but I think the cost models, the ROI calculations are completely screwball. So let yeah. me give you an example, still going back to zero trust. There's actually there's actually a business case that is actually getting made, which says, oh, you can get rid of your MPLS network and you and use broadband internet securely using zero trust, which is in fact the case. Hmm. If you solve the reliability problem with SD-WAN, you solve the you know you solve the security problem with zero trust. Now you're talking about saving a million, five million, ten million dollars a year. I don't really care what your security product costs. It's a fraction of that. And then the and then another example, not that not that I've seen anyone do this. Oh hey, we're ripping out Microsoft from every nook and cranny in our company. That's going to save you a boatload that you can then spend on ab initio greenfield cybersecurity. Which is not to say that the the cost of cybersecurity products it may be wildly inflated. It's just that the ROI really needs to start looking at the business as a whole. I think cost is generally a problem in that the cost of cybersecurity doesn't match. It's a cost. You can't make an argument in any reasonable fashion that cybersecurity is profit center, except as it's a defense oh, against lost organization. Profit. Yeah. Absolutely. Absolutely. I mean, you can figure out clever ways to pay for it, but absolutely. It's like yeah. saying it's like saying electricity is a cost. I mean, yeah. yes, without if we had to do all this stuff with an abacus and, yeah, that's right. yeah. you know, a stick in sand, you could kind of. Absolutely. And that's a very and becomes a much more difficult argument. If you can't go into the CEO and say electricity is a profit center for us, it's just right. a cost. Right. It's And then. And that's a bigger thing. And maybe it's about time to close out on that. And maybe we can talk about this in an upcoming episode. But mm. I'm seeing a real swing away from the whole idea that IT needs to be self-sustaining and a profit center back to what the hell were we thinking? That makes no sense. IT is an enabling capability for us to do our business better. It's not there to make a prop profit on its own. So, And I see yes. cybersecurity getting carried along with that. But I do think that the, the value of cybersecurity is changing as we see more and more of it in the mainstream media. It's raising it up as not just a corner issue inside my IT people. It's actually becoming a societal issue. And there are, you know, and that changes perception. At the end of the day, you can say the joke about in-flight magazines influencing CEO perceptions to technology. Absolutely true. Oh, it's absolutely by. true. I want to come back to this because before we started, Greg, I said, you know, this is not going to be one of those episodes where John will succeed in tying it up in a neat little <laughs> bow. But I have to say, you tied it up for me because yeah. we answered the question, why are so people so freaking stupid? Hmm. And the answer is because they can be. It's the moral hazard issue. Yeah. But that may be changing. And that's kind of the, you know, if you take nothing away from this conversation, but that, that's a start. I think so. I, I generally think that cybersecurity is maturing slowly, that the people that are indigenous to the industry are becoming more realistic, so attaching themselves to the real world. And I also think the days of, of running technology slowly, which led to cyber risk, we're actually now transitioning to technology is running faster. So this idea of regular updates that are not optional, that products are aging out more quickly. I mean, you know, the death of older Windows products, the fact that Apple is, you know, effectively made it mandatory to keep updating the iOS as fast as possible. It's not even, you know, and you want to because it's safer and more secure, but it's also better. You know, those basic fundamental things are changing our cybersecurity in certain ways. Like the the Apple App Store says you can't sideload unsafe apps, so they can't engineer around the side. 
there are other problems with that. You don't, there are lost freedoms in return for certain issues. So there are, you can be on any side of all those things. And, and I do mourn the fact that I could have run anything on a Windows machine. But I also understand it makes malware and viruses much more hardware emulation or hijack. It becomes very difficult. So I do tend to be more in that we need technology to go faster to reduce risk. And we need executives to understand that and run with it. Well, go for faster I, I would change. say... I would say rather than technology go faster, we're in a period of paradigm shift. Get with it, surf the wave, or get left behind. And reduce the cost of operations. One of the biggest problems with security is this, the increasing attack surface and then the increasing defensive profile that you take. You can't treat them as a bunch of point solutions. You have to have a unified solution. A absolutely, well, and that can be another conversation. Uh, let's wrap this up for today. Thanks for listening to Heavy Strategy. Jonah and I have been... <laughs> That's a lot of topics to cover in 30 minutes, but there you go. Uh, thanks very much for listening to Heavy Strategy. Jonah, where can people find you? Please come hit us up on the Nemertis site, nemertis.com. And if you like this conversation, sign up to join the uh, community. Greg posts regularly in the community, and we chat with our community members. So come join us in the community. And uh, I'm uh, at packetpushes.net. There's a blog post to go with this. Uh, not that there's much there. We don't put links or any of that sort of stuff here. This is really something where we just try and discuss a topic and hopefully that adds something to you. You get some ideas or some thoughts about how to take something new to do in your business. And that's why we say the questions are greater than the answer. If you've got feedback or follow-up that you want to give us, head on over to packetpushes.net slash FU. There's a form there. Don't need to give us any of your personal information, but fill it out and we'll uh, carry it into the show. If you've got any pushback, we'll be happy to take your pushback or your debate topics or adding or deleting. And if we said something wrong that you don't believe in, Tell us, and we'll come back and do a retraction on the very next show so that it doesn't stay out there forever. As always, remember that three, two, I don't know. Ah, one, Com two. Comrades. <laughs> Comrades, friends, stay safe. <laughs> <laughs> and thanks very much for listening to Heavy Strategy. See you again in two weeks. Valid. All right. Well, that was fun. Yeah. Um, 